whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. I'm Aaron Parrott. Before we get into the uh, books that we're going to talk about this time, we uh, want to thank some sponsors. The Isle of Books in Bozeman donated to our cause, and also the Chapter One Bookstore in Hamilton has uh, become a sponsor. Many thanks. Yes. We appreciate it. Hey, welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. I'm Aaron Parrott. And today we're going to be talking to a good friend of ours, Alan Weltzine, who just came out with a book called Savage West about uh, an author that uh, grew up in the Beaverhead County, Dillon area, and should be much better known than he is. And... Um, one Parrot. of Thomas Savage's uh, novels called Sheep Queen. So, welcome, Alan. You must be so satisfied to see this movie being made from Power of the Dog. Jane Campion, of course, she won an Oscar for piano, didn't she, for the piano? She won the Palme d'Or at Cannes <clears throat> in okay. 1993. The first woman director to ever win that. Right. And I so, know she was at least nominated for the piano. Yeah, so, uh, and the and the power of the dog was should have premiered at Cannes, but because of disagreements, policy disagreements between Cannes Film Festival and Netflix, which uh, backed the financially backed uh, the power of the dog, uh, the world premiere occurred in the Venice Film Festival instead. Ah, well, that's still pretty yeah. damn good. <laughs> but yeah, that's disappointing that they didn't get to con but yeah you've been doing research and touting this guy's work for years like how long 20 years probably yeah yeah and you know one of my uh dear friends to whom the uh book is co-dedicated it's a you know in memory of sue hart of billings mm, yeah sue hart is the one who told me a long time ago that i should uh Read this. Uh, start reading this guy from Dylan, whom I never uh, heard of. Both he and his uh, novelist wife, Elizabeth or Betty Savage. So I started reading them, and uh, <clears throat> I got pretty turned on pretty quickly by uh, Tom's fiction, and realized that uh, he'd just been passed over. I, in my uh, biased view, he's one of the best uh, novelists from our part of the States, without any question. And that opinion, as you guys know, is shared by uh, no less than Tom McGuane. Yes. And us. And, and us. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, uh, you know, your and, story reminds me of a similar episode. Earl Gans told me that he had a similar conversation with uh, Miriam. You know, the... H.C. Miriam, yep. Yeah, English guy over at uh, you know, Missoula, Montana, and he yeah. he asked him. He's like, "So, you know, who should I study or who should I look into?" And uh, Miriam yeah. said, "This guy, yeah. Myron Brinick, Myron no Brinick. one knows about anymore." Native, and they, native. they have really similar trajectories, you know. Uh, yeah. Although I think Brinick was more successful early on, but both gay yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. So, how long have you been working on the book, Alan? So the biography pretty much took the last three years of the career. My wife uh, gave me a kick in the right place and said, I really should get on and do this thing before I retire. So that was the goal was to, uh, I'll back up and say that I've supposedly been an expert on Montana literature, uh, at least at our small campus and this and that. And I really have enjoyed that immersion in you know, my 
in the 29 years that I was here at Montana Western. And so I kind of felt like this was my uh, closing act. And oh. closing act is, uh, you know, the position of the biographer is to, I hope, or at least one version of a biographer is to elevate or restore uh, the status of the subject. And uh, it's clear, as I have said, and you guys have agreed, that this guy is very good. The story, as you both know, a primary story is fantastic reviews on every single novel, even mm. the weak, what he thought were the weakest, uh, the second and third novels specifically, although he made the most money from his third novel, which is a sentimental parable, a bargain with God. But he, he never sold the uh, then young woman who was an assistant at Little Brown and uh, engineered the republication 20 years ago, right now, this year, of the two best novels. Power of the Dog was reissued in June 19, uh, 2001 in the uh, Back Bay Trade Paperback Edition. And uh, Emily Salkin Taukudes had uh, done research and she and her novelist husband knew Tom in the last years of his life. And I talk mm. about that, as you guys know, in the, my book. And she said, when the, when power came out, it sold maybe a thousand copies tops. That's it. That's you crazy. Can get, you know, you can get first editions of Tom Savage and Betty Savage really inexpensively. Wow. So, you know, one thing that you mentioned in your book, and I think the background of this is that Power of the Dog, like a, a lot of his other novels, got universally positive praise by critics. And, yeah. you know, on 109, you say Hudson Review call, uh, called it the year's best novel. San Francisco Chronicle called it the year's best novel. William Pritchard said, yeah. you know, all this stuff about it. So this guy was a critical success, but early in the book, you say he doesn't even appear in the anthology, the last best place. Not only that, he doesn't appear in uh, my friend, Ken Egan's, you guys are friends with Ken. When he did hope and dread in Montana literature, it's right. not, there's no appearance there. Uh, in the best of Montana short fiction, the thing that, uh, uh, the late great daddy Bill Kittredge did with uh, Alan, right. Alan Horst Jones, Aaron. Right. You know, Tom Savage gets part of one sentence. Oh my God. So, I mean, the point is there's complete neglect. Um, why, but I guess what I'm getting at is why do you think that's the case? Well, I think uh, Tom Savage uh, almost, I, I think almost whimsically or gleefully uh, confessed to uh, ignorance or claimed at least since he was so chimerical and he was always uh, acting. He claimed that, um, that he really didn't know what was going on very much. He didn't know very many other writers at all. He wasn't a reader. Uh, his novelist wife, Betty was the reader and kept up. And uh, I think I mentioned in the book that in this, even in 1983, which is when he, you know, enacted the uh, local boy makes good, his final appearance in Dillon, Montana, he claimed, I believe, that he never heard of Ivan Doig. <laughs> wow. So, so I think that was a, that was sort of an ironic, self-mocking confession uh, mm. in some regards. Uh, and he says, and you know, in other places that he is a, of course, a, he is a, a native Montana novelist, and he really doesn't understand particularly why he's not part of the, whatever the literary establishment was. And as you guys know, he had this career much bigger than uh, most, most novelists from this part of the world. Including yes. William Kittredge. Well, so you won't go there, Russ. <laughs> I think I just did. Anyway, yeah. So one of the things that's, that I was thinking about with that whole issue is, you know, we've all experienced the sort of petty personality conflicts that happen in our little world. So I'm sure that was part of it. But to not include him in the last best place is just criminal. I mean, it, well, the historical irony, as you guys know from the biography, is that uh, Joseph Kinsey Howard, uh, way back in the 40s, uh, right. had a, a broader understanding. And uh, in Montana margins, as you know, uh, 
there's a big chunk of, uh, well, two or two to four chapters worth uh, from Tom's first novel, The Pass, which I think right. is excellent, which I've taught many times because of the, the Drum Lumen uh, Riverbend. Mm-hmm. Ken, uh, Howard got it. And, right. you know, Mary Blue is a close personal friend, for example, and has been for 30 years. And I used to query her and she just uh, admitted a mistake. She admitted mm. for her from her lights is just one of that uh, infamous editorial board that they blew it. They blew it. They sure did. I think they royally blew it, actually. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think Kittredge was the publicity guy. And uh, I think actually too much of Kittredge's background matches, uh, frankly, uh, some of Tom's. They didn't come from the poor side of the tracks at all. Mm. You know, they, they came from Money Ranch. Right. Uh, both of them did, right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that because it feels a little bit like Savage as sort of a protective, you know, this whole thing about not knowing who Doig was and all that. It, it was probably a little bit of self-preservation, you know, yeah. over the years being ignored and completely. It, I mean, it's well, amazing to me that you didn't even know who he was after living in Dillon for how long? Almost 10 well, years. I don't know, several years, you know, in yeah. most of the 90s, I didn't know. Sue I was a dear friend, as she was likely to both of you guys. Yeah, and I love Sue. They, well, she organized, she organized at what? One of the very first Missoula book fests. She right. organized a Tom Savage panel, which I got to be in on. Oh, and so by then I had been reading him, but I think that was... Uh, like 2001, because I think, uh, just to remind you, both Power of the Dog was reissued in June of that year, and then a month or two after 9-11, the, uh, the Sheep Queen got reissued, which is uh, retitled, uh, you know, it's right. I Heard My Sister Speak My Name, which is excellent. I mean, you know, I, I argue in the book that when once he unleashed what was inside him for Power of the Dog, he was on a hell of a roll for the next yeah. decade. Oh, I love The Sheep Queen. Yeah. And you know what was interesting about that book was it was so clearly autobiographical, but the fact yeah. that he, he fictionalized it just yeah. slightly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. even using the same first name, but oh, it, yeah. allowed, it allowed him to kind of explore some of the other people from their point of view and uh, i just think it's a brilliant book well he uh, you know i i make the case about him he's just always flirting with boundaries uh, mm-hmm. generic boundaries isn't he russ you're the novelist here i'm not and sometimes he didn't change names at all you know and is what turned out to be the last novel the corner of uh rife and pacific that's a dylan joke because these are parallel streets these are real streets oh. <laughs> And you know they're about uh, half a dozen blocks apart with the with the train tracks in between them. So that's funny. And but he calls it the Hotel Andrews in several novels. It's the Andrus A N D R U S. So he's 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 screwing around with stuff like that. Yeah, I'm going to read the opening here just because I think it's such a great yeah, yeah. into how he approaches this whole book. So I will call myself Tom Burton or Thomas Burton, as the name would appear on the novels I write. I am too difficult for some readers, and my sentences are sometimes more than statements. Many readers are comfortable only with the simple sentences and prefer books that reward a belief in the happy ending and the pot at the end of the rainbow, even as the rainbow retreats and those who follow are footsore. There is no ending, happy or otherwise, only a pause. I live with my wife, herself a novelist. Together we make a decent living. Except for the children, we would make a better living. But we eat, pay the bills, and see our way clear to having the leaks in the roof fixed, or at least located. (laughs) We consider ourselves lucky to do what we want in the place where we want to do it. We have not seriously considered divorce, But sometimes after a few martinis, we shout and pick at old scabs. My wife once hurled at me a plate of salt mackerel and boiled potatoes, a favorite meal until then. Months later, we still 
discovered elusive bits of fish set in potato on the iron railing leading down into the dining room. I just love that. That's arrested me since the first time I read that book. And uh, as I've written, you know, I, in some ways that defines his aesthetic, but that's clearly, that's straight nonfiction. Yeah. There's nothing fictitious here whatsoever. Right. Exactly. The the nastiness between the couple, the reminder here is that um, Tom was once described, <laughs> and you might find this funny or not, or a bullshit, uh, Russ, but he was a functioning alcoholic. Yeah. I don't know if that's an oxymoron. They had enough money to drink pretty steadily, and uh, that's he liked to turn up... Uh, his uh, you know classical music albums really pretty loudly, and uh, by the afternoon he was in his cups, but he had you know pretty unusual uh, work rhythms and liked to uh, write in the late night and early morning. So he would retire early and be up. And uh, his son Russell has, as I've quoted him, memorably described the the work routine and what the sound of the typewriter was like at uh, uh, three or four o'clock in the morning. Mm. But there's an unpublished um, memoir of the Savage's older ex-daughter-in-law, which I have. I have. And oh. the domestic scene in the 1960s was, was pretty ugly sometimes. And yet these two, uh, ultimately in- incredibly moving to me, that despite their... Uh, alcohol-fueled uh, animosity and and worse sometimes, uh, verbal abuse that tripped into physical abuse at times. What both the uh, surviving kids, the son, Russell, and the daughter, Betsy, had told me over and over again is the childlike dependency, interdependency that they sustained. Mm-hmm. And the way that they they really uh, reinforced uh, one another as novelists and that Betty was his Tom's first and last editor. Nothing was published until she'd gone over everything. And you know, if if Sue Hart had lived longer, she Sue Hart Russ was an uh, Aaron was working on a at least an article on the fiction of Betty Savage, and mm. uh, she had it called "Giving Betty Her Due" because this is a story you guys have heard more than I have about, well, so the guy gets the attention, but in some respects, it was a pretty profound collaboration because she did, by the way, always defer to Tom's novels. And I've, I've read five of Betty's nine novels and they're fun. They're snappy. They're ironic, but she called them mere entertainments. And that's probably too self-deprecating, but they have none of the uh, punch and uh, and the energy and the irony that Tom's novels have. Sounds like Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> although Percy didn't exactly come up with Frankenstein, did he? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying is she, you know, she was really the... I think the real writer and uh, she spent most of the last part of her life just, you know, going around Europe touting her husband's poetry. Um, she was the custodian. Right. Yeah. yeah. But you and, know, I think. And the archivist. 200 years later, I think most, you know, people are still reading Frankenstein, but who the hell reads yeah. Percy Shelley? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, so what I really wanted to get at was, could you say a few words about her novels? Like, are they still in print? What's a good one no, to start? No, none with? of them are in print. Okay. No. None of them are in print. Well, for one thing, she wrote a couple of Western kinds of novels. Uh, let's see, The Girls of the Five Valleys. I should have the titles right in front of me right now. That are set in, you know, the Brenner Ranch in Horse Prairie, something like that. She okay. also wrote a novel about the Pre-Raphaelites. Mm. Wow. I think Willowwood, that's really, it's about uh, Dante Rossetti and uh, his lover, whose name I'm not remembering right now, one of them, who ended up so emaciated, I think she died. Wow. That's pretty interesting kind of investigation of the pre-Raphaelites in the 1860s, 70s. Her last novel, I do remember the title of Betty's last novel, was called Towards the End. And that is uh, set in Maine, where they lived. 
And mm-hmm. uh, Tom said, and I mentioned this in the book as well, that Betty understood Mainers and therefore could write about them. And though they lived there uh, on the coast of Georgetown Island for 30 years, uh, Tom's, and maybe this is self-preservation too, Russ, he said he couldn't understand Mainers, so he did not write about them. <laughs> and he tended to, you know, I think five of the 13 novels are... Um, set in New England, usually a Boston area or something like that, because they lived in Waltham, Mass. for a while. And as you know, Tom was uh, employed by Brandeis for half a dozen years until he finally gave up the gig and uh, wanted to write full time and then move the family up to this then remote place. They were the first year-rounders. It was pretty isolated. Wow. 1950s and through uh, the 60s. Betty's last novel focuses on the community uh, around Indian Neck or Crow Point at this minute. I'm forgetting which is the fictitious name or which Indian is Indian Point name. is the real name, isn't it? Indian Point. And, and, and particularly focusing on the February 1978 blizzard, mm-hmm. which uh, destroyed part of their house and they had to rebuild up higher because they faced the open Atlantic. And then they stayed, you know, another seven or eight years. And it was after, uh, actually, as you guys know from the novel, the middle son, Russ, uh, caught his uh, promiscuous wife uh, in flagrante delicto, and so he shot her. And then he uh, was in two or three uh, pens in Maine and then was transferred actually to Washington State, uh, Russ was, uh, which is why Tom and Betty moved from Georgetown Island, Maine to uh, Langley on Woodby Island, which is kind of close to where I'm from and where our summer cabin is mm-hmm. on the next island. Uh, and then they only let, they were there only five years when Betty succumbed to lung cancer because she never stopped smoking, which mm-hmm. Tom had. But you've read that stuff probably. So what's interesting to me about his alcoholism is that he became a better writer over time and you know I, I actually read a book quite a few years ago called the thirsty muse oh that, i still have my copy of that oh do you yeah that's so, an important book to me man yeah so that that explores the i didn't think it was very well written but the the stories about these this guy did those, did those research the yep. five People were uh, Hemingway, Faulkner, uh, Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee Williams, and Fitzgerald. I forgot Tennessee Williams is in there too. I forgot. Yeah, that. and almost all of them, their careers deteriorated over time. Faulkner was pretty much the only one who didn't. So this is what is interesting to me about Savage is that not only did he become a better writer, but it sounded like he also kind of became a a better family man over time too. Like he, you talked about him moving to Washington to be closer to to those people. I mean, his drinking obviously affected everything to some extent, but that's pretty fascinating. That's part of the, uh, the challenging core of, of the personality is that he's, he and Betty knew he was gay. And the fact that he told her that right up front is amazing. yeah. Yeah. And then they, you know, they're some of the first undergrads at Colby College in Maine to, you know, get married. And so they can actually live together and all that stuff. And he was, uh, as you know, an in- intensely a family man. But it's hard, um, to, particularly with the two sons and given what happened in the early 1960s, um, that was never completely forgivable for them, even as they deeply loved their father. I know this more from uh, Russ. In terms of the family, it seems to be, I've heard from several relatives that uh, the older son, Brazel, was the brilliant one in the whole family and was pretty seriously mentally unstable and stayed that way. He was in a tragedy of addiction for most of his life. Uh, And again, that unpublished memoir is pretty grim. Uh, The first marriage, four children pretty quickly, ended up in what he called the Looney Bin in Bangor, Maine you know, by the end of the 1960s for an extended uh, hospitalization. And uh, and he ended up, uh, a marriage or three later, you know, he ended up in old age back with his father. 
and died in a horrible, as I mentioned the detail, a horrible way in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which uh, Tom couldn't stand, but his daughter lived there, which is why they, why they were there. But he, he knew that by the time he was, for example, writing Her Side of It, which he thought for a period of time was his best novel, and by the time he was writing For Mary With Love, he and Betty talked about uh, how the first draft was, was mostly the final draft. And he wrote faster and he was more confident. And in the audio um, interviews, uh, when he came back to Dylan in 1983, he is quite self-deprecating about Lona Hansen, his second novel, and A Bargain with God, his third novel. And he said, I was just learning for God's sake. Mm. I really like Lona Hansen. I mean, after yeah. Power of the Dog, not that I've read all of his novels, but um, I really liked Lona Hansen a lot. Me too. I mean, that's, it's got a melodramatic flair for sure. But as you know, I argue, this is the rough draft of the whole career. Uh, mm. The character types and um, the sort of unflinching, uh, uh, well, as you know, I compare it to Dreiser's An American Tragedy because, because Savage does himself in the text, you know. Right. He brings that up. And uh, this is... Uh, and, and uh, perhaps of more moment, it, Aaron, is the comparison with Jane Smiley's Thousand Acres without oh, yeah. King Lear deal. But, you know, and Bona Hansen is 20,000 acres and the, the enslavement of the protagonist to the ginormous ranch destroys her. Right. And, you know, throughout that novel and The Power of the Dog, you know, there's just these really nasty, vindictive, it's just amazing to me how realistically he depicts these people that are really all around us, apparently. Well, cold country suggests that of Russell. <laughs> Rowland. No shit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, so I was Aaron, told that in horse Prairie, every, every uh, ranch family back in the day has a dysfunctional story. Every single one. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Aaron, I was curious about, your take on as a professor of comparative literature what is it about savage that wouldn't appeal to the to the mass what do you think it is i've puzzled over this myself but uh i think the you know we talked about this in one of our first podcasts you know the cynical kind of paranoid view would be that if the english professors don't teach him then he's never going to get traction that there's a whole school of thought that sort of argues that without the imprimatur of English professors, certain books never really enter the canon. And so maybe there's some of that going on here. You know, I think there's the whole, his books are not easy to read. Like, I don't think Power of the Dog is an easy read. You know, it's like Faulkner. It's, it's not facile, luminous prose that came out of the Iowa Writers Workshop or something like that. It's, well, I, cool. I think personally, uh, Tom is far easier to read than than Daddy Bill Faulkner. But uh, I would maybe uh, agree, Aaron, that he it is absolutely unsettling. Yeah, um, yeah it's, you know it's the notorious first paragraph to the end, which, as I mentioned in the book, my the bio, he rewrote eleven times. That's just vicious. And that makes you, you, you kind of catch your breath and you just hold your breath. Cause it's, I guess what I'm getting at is uh, a lot of his stuff and I'd have to go back and reread it, but I, my experience with both power of the dog and Lona Hansen was I'd read a paragraph and I'd have to go back and read it again, just to be sure of what oh. was being conveyed there. Like okay. it's, you know, there, like there's more than one level of what's going on in the narration. Yeah. It's not, yeah conversation driven for example right you know to compare it to uh charles webb the mm -hmm. guy who wrote the graduate they would be contemporaries but you know charles yeah. webb is manifestly easy to read because it's almost entirely conversation that yeah i guess that's what i'm getting at um so well, maybe there's two comments uh one is that um uh, he talked about in uh, letters in those audio interviews about catching flack for what he called and perhaps i echo his essayistic interludes that's one thing about it yeah, and maybe yeah. the best example of all is the one russ was kind enough to read uh, the first uh, page of uh, of the sheep queen but the second comment i would make is that uh 
Jane Campion when asked about craft, at least at a, uh, one or two of the panels that Lynn, my wife and I attended at the Telluride Film Festival, when she would ask, when asked about how she put the movie together, her uh, default is to immediately start talking about the novel and mm -hmm. the quality of the novel and particularly the shifting point of view or points of view, that it's not just, and, and as you guys, I don't know if you would agree or not, but the, the novel is much more nuanced in that than her, as you will see, uh, her film adaptation, which is mostly focused on Phil Burbank. Mm. Um, it does shift, it does shift around a bit. And there's certainly a, a really harsh uh, view of Dylan in several guises throughout the novel and in the film adaptation there's no town it's all on on the ranch oh yeah i mean he does he wrote you know I, he rewrote dylan over and over again and he was nasty and i love it one he thing says, you know there are a bunch of dumb fucks around here <laughs> <laughs> well i and, think that that that's definitely part of what made him and, it, you know, it's also interesting to note that he was way more popular probably on the East Coast than he was in Montana. Like, the people that really admired his work were mostly out there. A, a lot of the reviews were amazing. So, yeah. But I also, you know, one thing I, I noticed right away when I started reading him was he he is stylistically unique. There's nobody that writes like like him. And in that respect... He reminded me actually of Annie Prue. Oh, you know, she, when I first started reading, um, what's the what's the uh, Scandinavian one? Shipping she, news. Yeah, the shipping news. Yeah. yeah. When I first started reading that book, it took me like fifty pages to get used to her, her rhythm, her the way she was rhythm, her style. You know. Yeah. I, I I couldn't, and but once I finally settled in I, I actually loved that book and it, i had kind of the same experience with with tom that it was it took me a while to get used to the rhythm the the way he turns a phrase i mean he breaks a lot of rules as far as using like passive verbs and stuff like that if he was in one of my workshops i'd be like you know <laughs> but it works it works i mean that's that's the genius of a great novelist they make it work even by you know, not following the traditional writing style, I think. The um, Aaron but, and Russ, what you, your last uh, comments make me think of that. Uh, I, to me, telltale review by a main uh, uh, newspaper guy that I quote, I think, in the conclusion or something, where uh, he's talking about a lot of uh, fiction just sails across the uh, surface of the bay or the sea. Uh, the 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 heavy uh, the weightiest uh, uh, fiction produced is submarine. It's down on, mm. on ground. But then in between, there's this dangerous stuff that uh, is semi submerged and that can explode on you. Do you remember this? Uh, yeah, I just read it this morning. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a hell of a way to uh, to describe maybe uh, what you were talking about, Aaron, about is difficulty. He's hard to take. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But also just so lyrical and poetic. I mean... Well, yeah. Look at in Lona Hansen. I mean, that's the balance, isn't it? He, he poeticizes all four seasons in this absolutely harrowing time when the big ranches are largely shutting down. Yeah. And he talks about his memories of a lot of that stuff. And when the population of this largest of Montana counties shrunk and more people moved into the town because they couldn't make it all the failed um, homesteads and all that kind of stuff. And the Brenner ranch that he moved into, you know, he always thought that place was hateful and cold. I mean, mm. that's, that's the core to me. It's about cold and hostile and it's about loneliness and it's about not fitting in. Even though when, as you know from the book, you know, he was self-defensively when he was 21, he thought, oh, man, this ranch life's the best. I'm going to become a, a full-time bronc rider. I'm going to rodeo. I'm going to, uh, you know, teach riding at dude ranches and all that stuff, which was 
just a passing uh, fancy as it turns out. But he, he always loved his mother's, uh, the Urian side, the sheep queen's side. Mm-hmm. And he hated the, he's got some wonderful nasty descriptions of the big house, which is the primary setting of the, of Gene Campion's adaptation, you know, in power. Hey, uh, so tell us a little bit about hanging out with Gene Campion and uh, all yes. that. If I, if you'll forgive uh, uh, a little <laughs> bit of vanity, if you watch long enough in the credits at the end, I mean, at the very end of the credits, after the fourth assistant gaff man is named and or woman, uh, there's a paragraph and special thanks to, and my name is the first on the in the list. That's so nice. I, I was hoping to be credited, and apparently Jane is sending a gift from Australia to uh, us. She and her very close friend and uh, executive producer, Tanya Sighachian, who is from London and who did the first four Harry Potter movies herself oh. and who now only works with two directors, one of them being Jane. They uh, credit us with the genesis of the movie because they uh, came here three years ago, almost this exact weekend. And we hosted them and I chauffeured them and I introduced them to our dear friend, Sandy James, who is, uh, the book is dedicated, my book is dedicated to, and who is Tom Savage's nephew and has, is the unofficial family historian. And so we showed them uh, all about Dylan and then Horse Prairie and took them over Bannock Pass and sat them in the sagebrush. And at the Urian, uh, what's the, the Urian Ranch now, they could watch this guy training a horse in a round corral and all that stuff. And she was taking uh, hundreds of pictures. She's been quoted now uh, more recently saying that she knew that uh, we could do better than this, meaning that uh, the actual home ground wasn't good enough for a film. And, uh, <laughs> but she's absolutely, she's down. They're both incredibly friendly, down to earth, gracious as hell. And uh, we were the Jane's guests, uh, the uh, the two couples of us at the Telluride Film Festival. Uh, all expenses paid, man. That's I've so never- awesome. I love that picture you sent of you hanging out with uh, Spider-Man's girlfriend. What's her name? She's in Kirsten the movie? Dunst. And- Kirsten Dunst, yeah. Yeah, and at the brunch, the next, uh, on a sun- the Sunday brunch deal, I went over to talk to the young Australian actor who plays Peter Gordon, who's just wicked good. This guy, uh, his name is Cody Smith-McPhee. And I was trying to tell him, you are so close to the Peter Gordon, I can't even tell you, man. And he mm-hmm. actually had only listened to an audio. But Kirsten was sitting there talking about her character, talking about Rose with this dude from Variety or Hollywood Reporter. And then I'm in the position of, well, actually, Kirsten, Rose is, you know, and I said things like, well, you know, Rose is, um, is Tom Savage's mother, who was the most important woman in his life, including his wife, hmm. who he always called, and I quote this, remember, my beautiful angel mother, and whom he always felt incredibly uh, protective about, uh, even as uh, they lived 3,000 miles apart, and as his mother uh, sank into serious terminal alcoholism Mm. that's all straight and you know phil burbank comes from bill brenner and there he is playing around with names again it's uh near names and weird weird uncle bill uh got demonized and uh and you know savage had to kill that part of himself repeatedly Mm. because in sheep queen aaron uh phil burbank comes back as ed brewer and it's even nastier and shorter yeah, it's clear that, you know, the reason that he didn't feel welcome in Montana was related to way more than just the fact that he was gay. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, yeah, there was a lot more going on. I can tell you that I was uh, could hardly sit there uh, uh, when we finally got to watch the movie. And um, we kind of braced ourselves, my wife and I, at least, that... Uh, there might be some interpolations here. Jane wrote the screenplay herself uh, the summer after she was mm. in Beaverhead County with Tanya. She had explained, they had explained to Lynn, my wife, that it would be too expensive to film it here anyway. 
Mm. And so Jane can't pick the, she is a Kiwi native and they picked a uh, rural location on the South Island. I guess it's a lot farther down than Peter Jackson's locations mm. for a certain other set of movies. And so it doesn't look like Horse Prairie and the house, the main setting of the, of the movie is a lot bigger and fancier than the actual house, which we had shown um, Jane and Tanya. But I can't tell you how joyful I feel about the movie. Well, that's great. Because it is, there are no interpolations. It is absolutely true to the spirit of the novel. Absolutely. And she, she accomplishes some, you know, visual or auditory shorthands that link some things. And uh, it's just, it's, it's creepy to me how close it, it is and how it realizes, you know, it realizes a lot of the tensions, the novel's homosexuality, the repressed uh, gay love and, and the homophobia is, if anything, underplayed. You know, Jane likes sex scenes. We've watched most of her movies. Mm-hmm. There are no, there, there's uh, an, uh, an imaginative sex scene. It's mm. really underplayed also. And, and Benedict Cumberbatch, it was a blast to talk to him. I learned that Jane, during the filming, they did out, all the outdoor, the location shooting before COVID shut things down. And then the rest of it, all the interior, was filmed in, an, uh, in a studio in Auckland on North Island, New Zealand. And Benedict did method acting. You know, however virtuosic he is and however huge his career already is, he tried to study uh, Phil Burbank and he had come back to uh, Montana several times to learn to ride, to learn to braid rawhide, a whole bunch of stuff. In fact, Aaron, you said a friend of yours uh, was involved in in, uh, the former of those, didn't you? Yeah, she's a rancher and a horsewoman and she said she was uh teaching him how to ride who's that well, uh yeah. former professor at my school uh jennifer swanson nice so when is, hey, uh, when is- benedict was saying i was just going to wrap by saying you know he tried to go into character and he was claiming that this really stretched him jane always called him mm-hmm. phil on the sets mm-hmm. never his name mm-hmm. and let him got helped did everything she could to make him go inside this guy. Well, it's easier to pronounce too. Um, I just want you to say something about the title of the book. One of the, you know, I think the reason I picked up the book in the first place years ago was the title. Yeah. And, you know, then you uh, open it up and there's the epigraph that explains, you know, it's from Deuteronomy or somewhere in the Bible. No, it's a, it's a proverb. It's proverb. a word, proverbs. So, I know in the book you talk about the title. Can you summarize all that? Well, that becomes a, uh, it's sort of a coterie um, uh, source of connection because Phil Burbank sees the dog formation in this rock outcropping that is up above um, the home ranch where the, right. you know, the main setting. And then it turns out that his uh, incipient or wannabe lover, who's also in fact his killer, uh, Peter Gordon also sees it. So they're privileged. Mm. And this is the mark, actually, this is the mark of their gay identity. Uh, I would even stretch and relate this to, you know, Tom's pursuit of luxury sports, European sports cars. This is the uh, iconography of sexual difference. So to sound highfalutin, maybe. And uh, for Jane Campion, she claims, and I remember this moment because she was quoted in a variety uh, or Vanity Fair article where my name is misspelled, uh, as usual, um, saying that she actually saw the rock formation. Oh. When we had left the immediate vicinity, she's looking back. They were taking, you know, 500 photos with her phones. And she's for her, Jane's narrative is that she felt like the author, that Tom Savage was blessing her because she saw it or she, that's her narrative she's going with. So she had a green light. Um, she had received uh, through the air permission to go ahead with the movie adaptation. And I'm, I may have told you, Aaron, that this sounds corny, but three years ago in our uh, dining room, you know, we, we cooked for him one night 
And I was telling him about, as you know from the book, all these failed movie options that involve some big people like Paul Newman, who was supposed to apparently be Phil Burbank. But according to Tom's daughter, Betsy, his hands were too small and this and that. But oh, I, this whole uh, this dog formation, maybe that's maybe that's what Lewis and Clark saw. And it wasn't Beaverhead Rock at all. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's a there's a bigger formation at the lower, i.e. north end of Horse Prairie near uh, what you call Grant. That's got a, a you know, for some an, uh, a warrior, uh, a Shoshone Bannock warrior, uh, warrior's face uh, outlined in the rock that's a lot bigger than this dog formation, which I have not seen. But it's beware the something in the book of Proverbs and the power of the dog. Beware. So it's a caution. Mm. It's also a caution. And it's a warning, um, which I think plays into uh, the novel, you know, in a lot of ways. And I've argued that that, un- that kick-ass opening, Phil always did the castrating. Mm. This symbolic self-emasculation going on right from, the, I mean, that makes uh, some of us who had, uh, who happen to be male, our scrotums tighten when we read this <laughs> paragraph. This is seriously effing unpleasant. This hurts. And it hurts in a way it's wicked, just like uh, at the end, when you and I realize after Phil does, that the gig's up and he's dying of anthrax or blackleg. Mm. And that is uh, not imagined because the real model, Bill Brenner, died of blackleg, as I mentioned in the book. Mm -hmm. So, Alan, let let me just ask this question, maybe to sort sort of wrap it up. Do you think that maybe all these years of close calls with movie rights and really good reviews and all this stuff and, and never actually breaking through that, maybe he reached a point where he was just like, fuck it. I'm going to write what I want to write. And that's why the last two books are so incredible that it was just like, he cut completely cut loose. Well, I think he wrote what he wanted to write all along. And, oh, you know, do you? Okay. I make absolutely. And I make the argument he, to say he scorned, uh, you know, uh, Westerns is an understatement. Well, yeah, Absolutely. The ways that he goes after Owen Wister specifically, he knew exactly what the, and he announces that in the first novel, which is F you, I'm telling the real deal. And he went his own way. And he, you know, part of his self-preservation to use your, repeat your phrase, Ross, is that he didn't know any, he claims he knew nothing ever about marketing and that marketing was one cocktail party in Manhattan, New York. But this is in, and Aaron knows a lot more about this than I do, I reckon. Uh, this is when uh, there is a stability in book publishing between distributors, retailers, down to independent local bookstores that has, has not existed, has it, for decades now. He just went his own way. And, and, you know, like a lot of writers, perhaps, I hope not us, the last, you know, 15 years are a pretty sad story because he couldn't sell he couldn't sell his last novel, which was he was trying again for an overtly gay novel called Buddies. Uh, and, you know, I talk about that. I, there's some of that manuscript that survives. I'm not sure it's very good. William Morrow, wouldn't, uh, who published uh, Corner Right Pacific, couldn't sell it hmm. and wouldn't take it. Even though, as I argue in the book by then, an awful lot of gay and lesbian writers are getting published with all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, the story of Patricia Nell Warren in the 1970s in this, in this state who like Tom got the hell out of here with the front runner. And the, the next novel after that, as they talk about, she changed the landscape in a way that, um, you know, 10 years earlier, Tom threw away his uh, overtly gay novel. He threw the manuscript in the Atlantic. He said in print and in voice, I wrote about myself once. I mean, that's part of the act because he claims, as you know, uh, that he was never writing autobiographically. And I'm arguing that's all he did. He was insistent about that. Blah, blah, blah. Right. So he went his own way and he had enough money from the ranch to keep, uh, to keep supplied with liquor and uh, food. Yeah. Well, he got some pretty decent paychecks for his movie rights too. Well, 
yeah, the game really changed in 1948 when he got 50,000 from Columbia Pictures. Yeah. Sure. But Rita Hayworth, remember, uh, uh, apparently she was pregnant about the time she was supposed to play Lona Hansen. So, uh, so that movie never happened. That would have hmm. been a hell of a thing to see. But uh, so I'm hoping that uh, a, a lot of people are curious now about the power of the dog. When is and, this uh, movie coming out? It will be available to some uh, theaters in uh, November, and it will be released available on Netflix via Netflix by December. Nice. So we're trying to arrange a Dylan Montana premiere <laughs> a week before Thanksgiving. We we kind of thought the world premiere should be at the Big Sky Twin Screen Cinema in Dillon, Montana. But oh, that would be awesome, man! It happened in Venice. And- <laughs> yeah, close enough. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Alan. Thanks Thank a you lot. very much, you guys. I, thanks uh, a lot. I this hour a lot. Thanks for letting me be part of the program. This was this was incredible. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Breakfast in Montana. Breakfast in Montana is produced by Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. Our guest this episode was Alan Weltsine, who just published a biography of the writer Thomas Savage called Savage West. Savage's novel, The Power of the Dog, is about to appear on the big screen in a film directed by Oscar-winning screenwriter and director Jane Campion, and it's starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst. So we, we hope you'll explore his books, especially The Power of the Dog, and the Sheep Queen. Our next guest is going to be Ryan Bussey, who has just published a book called Gunfight. Ryan Bussey worked for a gun manufacturer called Kimber for over 20 years, and he has written an insider's look at the gun industry that is fascinating. And we're going to pair him up with a one of our favorite memoirs from Montana history, a book by Teddy Blue Abbott called... We pointed them north. Join us again next time for Breakfast in Montana.